Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Ria. You know, if you listen to some people, especially those in the media, they'll tell you that America's history and that the country is heading in a wrong direction fast. And there's a lot of negative statistics, there's a lot of trouble in America, and some of that might be true, but our God has still made a covenant with the Church of Jesus Christ. And I believe, I say this with all of my heart, there are good days ahead for this country. God has blessed us, God will continue to bless us, especially as we continue to seek Him. And so it's so great to know that God has entered into that kind of relationship with us and He cannot fail. Again, I want to welcome you to Community Christian Church and say it's great to have you here. Today I'd like to begin a brand new five-part series. We're going to have this series throughout the month of July called Parables. Say that. Parables. And now I'm talking about the parables of Jesus. During his earthly ministry, recorded in the New Testament Gospels, parables and short stories were one of the primary vehicles that Jesus used to convey and communicate truth to his followers and listeners. And with every parable that Jesus taught, some of the truth he was attempting to communicate was obvious to everyone. We call that surface truth. I mean, you could easily pick up the message of that lesson as soon as it was taught. But then also included in the parable was some hidden truth. And the only way that you could possibly understand or grasp the hidden message of that parable was to do a little digging, wait upon the Lord, and depend upon the Holy Spirit to give you direction and revelation. And again, Jesus loved to preach using parables. He did that all the time. And the scriptures record over 40 parables that Jesus taught. Now, of the 40 parables, the 40 plus parables that Jesus told, uh, how many of those parables are listed in the Gospel of John? Bible study students, how many? Zero. None. 40 plus parables scattered throughout the what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but no gospel, no parables in the gospel of John. So if parables were so important and so essential that Jesus made them a priority, why didn't John record any of Jesus' parables in his book? Well, in order to answer that question, you have to understand why Jesus taught with parables in the first place. I mean, why didn't he just come out with the truth? Why didn't he make it very plain? And, and, and sometimes the disciples would say to him, okay, now you're talking to us in, in ways that we can understand. Why did Jesus use allegories and metaphors and every other difficult kind of communication? Why didn't he just roll out the truth? Well, believe it or not, he answered that question in the Gospel of Matthew. After he told the parable of the sower, and the disciples didn't quite understand it. They took him aside privately, and in Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 and 11, 
They came right out and asked Jesus, why do you speak to the people in parables? Why do you make everything so difficult and such a mystery? And Jesus responded and said this, the knowledge and the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. The knowledge and the secrets of the kingdom of heaven are given to you, but not to them. In other words, Jesus said, for the people who have a heart for God and a desire to learn, parables will increase their knowledge and their understanding. But for people who reject my teaching, those who are always looking for some kind of an objection or contradiction, they're never going to get it. And here's what I want you to understand. And you might have a bunch of questions for this, but this is the truth. Jesus used parables, and those parables opened the eyes of the student, but they blinded the eyes of the skeptic. When Jesus taught with parables, he knew the parable was going to open the eyes of the student, but it was going to blind the eyes of the skeptic. And he did that to conceal and protect truth from those who were attempting to destroy it. That's how valuable the truth is contained in the parables. Jesus made every effort to conceal it from those who would abuse it. And so to answer the question, why didn't John include any parables in his writings? It wasn't because he didn't believe in them or support that kind of teaching. John didn't include the parables because his assignment was different. It was different than the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. See, in John's gospel, his main purpose was to reveal truth and not conceal it. Right from the very beginning. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. Who's the Word? Jesus. Right off the bat, opening verse, John tells us the reason why he wrote his gospel. It was to present Jesus as the Son of God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they presented the human side of Jesus. But John, he explained and expressed Jesus in all of his divinity. In fact, a little later on in the book, towards the end, chapter 20, the Bible comes right out and says these things in this gospel have been written so that you know Jesus is the Son of God, and having heard these things, what? You might have eternal life. God never wanted to conceal the truth of his Son from anyone. And so John talked plainly. He didn't bring any parables. Doesn't mean he undermined uh, the parables of the teaching. In fact, his gospel actually enhances the parables. You got that? How many are confused? I've uh, got one over there. All right. Hopefully that sheds a little light on the importance of parables, why Jesus taught in parables. So let's look at the first parable in this uh, series. And again, we're going to be looking at a minimum of five parables. And we're going to begin today with the parable of the weeds. The King James Version uses the word tares or the parable of the tares. You want to call the weeds tares? That's fine. I'm going to call them weeds. All right. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. All right, let's read this parable together. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, 
What were the people doing? While everyone was sleeping, the enemy came and he sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So, did the workers of the field sow weeds? What did they sow? They sold wheat. They sold good seed. But the enemy came and he planted some weeds. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring the wheat into my barn. All right, that's good right there. As I mentioned a few moments ago, all of the parables that Jesus taught had some information that was easy to understand. It called that surface truth. And then the parable also had uh, some allegories or illustrations that were difficult to understand. Such is the case with this parable. In fact, this parable, when you study it carefully and you take a look at everything that Jesus was trying to communicate, it contains several layers of different truth. And this morning, talking about the parable of the weeds, I could have gone in many different directions. I could explain to you the distinction that's going to be made at the end of the age between believers and unbelievers. There's a concept today that everybody's going to go to the same place. That's not what Jesus said. There are different eternal destinations, and people are going to be moving in different directions, if you know what I mean. I could also talk about the ongoing conflicts in our world today. Conflicts that are becoming more intense and way more pronounced. And I'm talking about political and moral, racial and religious wars that are breaking out all over the place. And Jesus made it very clear. He said, it doesn't matter how committed you are to hosting the perfect environment, you're never going to be able to completely eliminate the spread of bad seed or evil or hatred or wickedness. So there's plenty of preaching material here in this one parable. However, for the purpose of this message today, what I'd like to do is focus in on just one verse, in fact, not even a whole verse. I want to look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 28a, which means that's the first part of the verse. Four words. An enemy did this. Say that. An enemy did this. An enemy did this. You see, after the workers were given their assignment to plant the wheat field, they prepared the ground. They did everything that they knew to do to make sure that it would produce good wheat. Then they planted the seeds and they waited for the wheat to grow. And a little while after the wheat started to come up, that's when they noticed all of these weeds in their garden. And now I'm not talking about your garden variety weed. I'm talking about uncontrollable, ugly weeds. Weeds that would strangle the crop. And so they tried for a little while to kind of get them under control, but they couldn't do it. 
So they went to the owner of the field, and they said to him, Sir, in the past you've always given us good seed. It's been pure. We've never had a problem before. Where in the world did all of these weeds come from? And that's when the owner of the field gave them a very direct and concise response. He said, an enemy did this. In other words, this action and activity was outside of our control. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Let that sink in. And let me tell you that I've been a Christian now for 43 years, ever since 1975. In 1975, and I didn't see it coming, but it came, by the grace of God, I opened my heart to the gospel message, and I received Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, and on that day, my life changed. And then as an added bonus, God called me into full-time ministry, and he gifted me to speak into the lives of people. And I do that on and off this stage. Now, oftentimes... Oftentimes, when I have a conversation with an unbeliever who is having a difficult time accepting and believing the faith that I have devoted my entire adult life to, what I try to do is communicate to that person what I believe to be the very first lesson anyone needs to learn about Christianity. And that is all about the love of God. I try to explain to this person that God, the God that I'm talking about, the God that's called us to serve him, he's a God of love. And friend, I believe that with all of my heart. When I tell you that I believe God is the God of love, it's not because I read it in the book, it's not because somebody else has told it to me, it's mostly because I have been a recipient of God's love. I know what his unconditional love feels like. And then in addition to that, it's in the Bible. In fact, in John 3.16, the hallmark verse of the Christian faith that tells us that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. It wasn't because he was judging the world. It wasn't because he was mad at the world. It wasn't for any other reason other than he loves us. So I believe John 3.16. I believe the other verses in the Bible that talk about how compassionate and kind and loving God is. And just so you know, I have my share of frustrations and disappointments and adversity. Contrary to what you may think, I go through the same trials and tests that everyone else goes through. I know what it's like to have a crisis of faith. I've had several. I know what it's like to feel crushed in spirit. And yet at the end of the day, just like the beginning of the day, I'm convinced of the love of God. I absolutely and passionately committed to explaining and articulating to people that God is a God of love. And so when people respond to that and they ask me, well, if God is such a loving God, if he's the kind of God that you claim he is, why is there so much pain in the world today? If God is a God of love, why is there so much 
sickness and disease and death and darkness and murder and violence and hatred. You know, when they ask those kinds of questions, I can't come right out and tell them what's on my heart because I don't feel that they would have the spiritual discernment to be able to accept it. But what I want to do with a tremendous amount of passion and conviction is respond to that objection with Matthew chapter 13 and verse 28a. An enemy did this. An enemy did this. Why is there so much pain in the world? An enemy did this. Why is there death and darkness and disease? An enemy did this. Why is there violence and hatred in this kind of a culture? An enemy did this. Because that's what the parable is telling us. It was outside of our control. We had nothing to do with it. You see, a few verses later in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 36, again the disciples didn't quite understand this parable, so they took Jesus aside privately and they said, explain to us the parable of the weeds. And so Jesus comes right out and tells us the content. It's right in the scripture. He said, the field is the world. The one who's sown the good seed is the son of man. The good seed produces wheat or believers, but the enemy, the devil, Jesus said, he's the one who plants the corrupt seed or the weeds, and the weeds represent the unbelievers. Now, you may not understand it. You might not even agree with me. But right now, as we speak, the devil continues to sow bad seed. That's his mission. That's what he's all about. And all of the conflict that we face in this world today is the devil's handiwork. That's why in 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul said, we are not ignorant or unaware of Satan's devices. We have to be discerning enough to identify the strongholds of the enemy and the schemes of the enemy. And over the years, I've learned where there's trouble, where there's chaos, where there's confusion, you'll find a demon. The devil will have a hand in it. Now, in John chapter 8 and verse 44, Jesus said this. The devil was a murderer from the beginning. Listen to this. This is a pretty powerful declaration of who the devil is. And especially for those of you who kind of chuckle when you hear someone talk about there being a devil. I was having a conversation with someone not too long ago. Uh, it, it was a Christian brother, but uh, one that didn't do a lot with his faith, if you know what I mean. Just called himself a Christian. And I was talking about spiritual warfare and, and the power of the enemy, and he, he kind of chuckled to himself and came around and told me that he didn't believe in that. Listen to what Jesus says about the devil in John chapter 8, verse 44, and tell me if you believe that there's a devil. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Do you know where lies come from? They come from the devil. He is the author. He is the father of all lies. Jesus said, a lying tongue is his native language. And he's good at it. He's been doing it a long time. So when your spouse or your student or your supervisor tells you a lie and you catch them in that lie, do you know where that lie is coming from? 
Do you know where that lie is originated from? From the enemy. Because Jesus said he is a liar. He tells lies. He's not committed to the truth. And a lot of times he'll, say, he'll tell you a half-truth that might bring you in a little bit, but it's nothing even close to being what you should believe. Am I making this point clear? The devil is a liar. And over the years, he has, taught, he has told two outrageous lies, many lies, but two outrageous lies that have completely changed the course of human history. And I want you to see this, what I'm going to tell you, in so much more than just an event. I want you to try and consider how this has affected us today. Two outrageous lies that the devil has told throughout the generations. Outrageous lie number one he told in the Garden of Eden. Remember, God told Adam and Eve to stay as far away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as they could. In fact, he told them to avoid it like the plague. He said, don't go near it. Don't touch it. Don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because on the day that you eat that fruit, what? You will die. God said, and he made it very clear, on the day that you eat the fruit from this particular tree, you will die. Satan came along in the form of a serpent. He lied through his teeth, and yes, most snakes have teeth. And he told Adam and Eve, you won't die. You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat the fruit of this tree, your eyes are going to be open, you're going to be like God, and you're going to be brilliant people. He lied. And they believed the lie. Do you remember what happened next? Adam and Eve died spiritually. They were put outside of the garden. And death, physical death, entered the human race for the very first time. Was God telling the truth? He was. Was the devil lying? Certainly was. So who's responsible for all of the sickness, the disease, the darkness, and the death that's in our world today? Comes right from that first lie. The second outrageous lie that the devil told, he told on the very first Easter morning. After the angel of the Lord came and rolled away the stone from the tomb that Jesus was buried in. The Bible tells us that the Roman soldiers, the praetorian elite guards that were posted there by Pilate himself to protect that scene, to watch over that scene, when they saw that angel, that massive angel, they hit the deck. They were so afraid they couldn't even move. Then finally, after the angel left, one of the soldiers looked from the corner of his eye, saw that the angel was gone. They made a beeline and hustled their way back to Jerusalem. They told the religious leaders what had happened. And the religious leaders, the Bible says, it's right in the scripture, paid them an enormous sum of money to tell the story that the disciples came during the night and stole the body of Jesus. And Matthew chapter 28 and verse 15 tells us that that lie that the, the Roman soldiers bought into, 
They took the money, they took the bribe, they began to tell that story uh, on the streets of Jerusalem, and the scripture tells us, Matthew 28, 15, that from that moment on, that lie has been in the streets of our world. So who's responsible for faithlessness and for the spiritual darkness and for all the doubt and all the disbelief among people today? Who owns that one? The devil does. He's a liar. The devil is a liar. And he hasn't stopped sowing bad seed in your life or in mine. In fact, let me give you 10 lies that the enemy is peddling right now, today. And I know because I talk to people. Lie number one, you have no power to change your life. None whatsoever. It is what it is. It's going to always be this way. Lie number two, God doesn't perform miracles anymore. Those are a thing of the past. Lie number three, he loves to, to tell this one, success and stuff will, will lead to happiness. Number four, because of grace, this wonderful, beautiful gift of grace, sinful behavior is just fine. You don't have to worry about getting it together. You know, God's grace will cover you. That's a lie. Lie number five, your shameful past will always define you. You're never going to make it, uh, you're never going to get past it. Number six, the word of God is not for today. It's an old message. It was spoken hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. It's not for today. We, our culture's changed. We're well, we're well advanced from the word of God. It's a lie. Your prayers and personal needs don't matter. They don't matter to God. They don't matter to anyone else. Being good will get you into heaven. That's all you have to worry about. The way you treat one another, the way you live your life. Number nine, hell is not real. And number 10, peace in this life is unattainable. Friend, these are all lies. Every single one of these statements, there is no truth in any of them. And yet because of negative situations and spiritual setbacks, the devil has convinced many people that God really doesn't care about you. That God has no interest in helping you through any difficulty that you might have. And as a result of that particular lie, many people have cast aside and lost their confidence and their trust in God. Many people today go through the motions. They say that they're believers, but they really don't tap in to the faith and into the power that God has given to us to live our lives victorious today. Well, in these last few moments, I want to try and restore your confidence in God. I really want to try and build some trust back into your heart. And now I'm talking about Proverbs 3 kind of trust, where you can trust Lord with all of your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll direct your path. That's the way that God wants us to trust him. That's the kind of approach that God is after, that we would have confidence in him, we wouldn't cast away our confidence. And one of the ways that I've determined to trust God like that is regardless of the situation that I'm facing or the emotional mindset at the time, I absolutely refuse to believe the lies of the devil. 
I have committed to myself that I am not going to tap into or lock into his lies. And I have identified the lies of the devil as anything that is contrary to the word of God. If it's not in the word of God, it's a lie. And I have concluded that when I hear those lies, whether they're full truths or half truths, it's the devil trying to convince me to lower my confidence level in God. I absolutely refuse to do that. When the devil tells me that I have no power to change my life, that there's no way things could ever be different or better, I tell the devil, you are a liar. Because the scripture says it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead that dwells in my mortal body. And so on the basis of God's word, I know there can come transformation and change. When I pray to God and God doesn't answer my prayer the way that I want him to, and the devil lies to me and says that God doesn't care or that he doesn't have the miracle power that he once had or miracles are not for today, I tell the devil, you are a liar. I will not receive your lie because the Bible tells me he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if God performed miracles yesterday, he can perform miracles today. When the devil tells me that my shameful past and the sins that I've committed uh, always are going to define me, I tell the devil he's a liar because the Bible tells me he makes all things new. God makes all things new. And there is therefore now no guilt or condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Are you getting this stuff? Are you understanding it? You can go right down the list of 10 lies that I gave to you, check them off the list. Lie, 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 lie. Or any other lie that the devil whispers to you, you don't have to listen to it. You don't have to believe it. It's the word of God that sets us free. In fact, the scripture says his word is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. It's quick. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. We can fight off every lie of the enemy with the truth of God's word. It's all we need is to tap in the truth. And we're, it's right there for us. And so when the devil comes to you in the middle of a sleepless night, and you're lying there, and you're helpless, and you're unable to do much of anything, and he just starts lying to you, sowing corrupt and bad seed into your mind, tell him to take a hike because he has no authority and no power over you. All right, one final verse and then communion. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 6. And you can see I'm pretty passionate about this. I'm dealing with a few lies myself right now. 2 Corinthians 10. For the weapons, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. For the weapons of our warfare... The weapons that God has given to us, they're not carnal, they're not fleshly, they're not weak, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, casting down what? Imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Do you know what imaginations are? Do you know what imaginations are? They're thoughts that are not real. Imaginations are thoughts that are not real. 
Now, some imagination is good, but not when it's contrary to the word of God. If an imagination is contrary to the word of God, that's a lie. And Paul says you've got to cast that down. You can't let that linger. You can't let that stay in your mind. You take all of those lies that the enemy uses to exalt himself against God and you wipe them out of your mind and out of your heart. I want you to understand when there's trouble in your life, when there's something outside of your control, when you're dealing with chaos and problems and difficulties, and it's not because of anything that you're doing wrong, remember an enemy did this, and the devil's a liar. All right, let's bow our heads and prepare for communion. If anyone doesn't have a communion cup with the emblems, please raise your hand and we'll get one to you. Father, we're going to take just a couple moments this morning and we're going to prepare our hearts. Give the Holy Spirit of God a chance to just allow some of what we said to work in our hearts. Father, we are so susceptible to listening to the lies of the enemy allowing worry, fear, and doubt to guide us instead of placing our trust in the God who loves us unconditionally and with every ounce of strength that you have. Father, as always, we pray that during the communion time as we gather together and receive the bread and the cup, that not only will we focus our attention on you and what you did for us, but Lord, we'll just take a quick peek at where we're at and use your word, use this preached message as a reflection tool to make any and all adjustments and corrections. Thank you, Lord, for the power of the Holy Spirit here to say things and do things that we're not capable of And I'm asking, Lord, in these closing moments that you will just gift us. As I mentioned earlier, you inhabit our praise. And Lord, we praise you. Your praise will ever be on our lips. And so we know that you're here. And I ask that you would give spiritual gifts to the people who need them today. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The scripture says it was on the night Jesus was betrayed that he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper was ended, Jesus took the cup. Again, he gave thanks. He passed the cup to his disciples and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you declare the Lord's death till he comes. I've mentioned this to you before. But the scripture tells us 
that when Jesus gathered his disciples together for his final Passover, and he introduced to them the communion supper that we celebrate today, every month, that the Holy Spirit made it very clear that it was on the night Jesus was betrayed. The information that it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed introduces this entire event. This ceremony that we call our communion, our, our special time with God. This, this interaction and intimate relationship that we can have through his body and blood, it was introduced to us with the whole concept that it happened on the night Jesus was betrayed. And tell me again, who betrayed Jesus? Who betrayed Jesus? Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus. And do you remember where that betrayal originated from? Who put it in Judas's heart to betray Jesus? The devil did. In fact, the scripture comes right out and tells us in the Gospel of John that during the time that they were sharing the Passover meal together, right at that exact moment, the devil now prompting Judas to go through with his betrayal plan. It's right in the scripture. See, an enemy did this. It wasn't just Judas. The devil played him, lied to him, told him a bunch of lies, and Judas took the bait hook, line, and sinker. But Jesus understood where the betrayal was coming from. He had great discernment. He knew what was taking place in the spirit realm. That's why just a couple of minutes before dinner, Jesus got up from the place where he was sitting. He reached out and grabbed a basin and a towel, and he went and he washed the disciples' feet, all of their feet, all 12 of them, including Judas's feet. Jesus knew that Judas was about to betray him, and yet he washed his feet. Now, I've never been much for the whole foot washing ceremony. I mean, it was a little bit more prevalent and popular 20 years ago than it is today, but it's a beautiful Christian ceremony when brothers and sisters can gather together and watch each, wash each, uh, each other's feet. Uh, you know, it, it encourages uh, humility and servanthood and, and love. But other than washing my own, I kind of keep my distance from feet. <laughs> and on that occasion, if it would have been me and I was assigned to wash feet, I probably would have washed 11 sets of feet and let Judas eat his Passover meal with dirty feet. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. Because he knew the fight was not against flesh and blood. Friend, it's never against people. The battle is never against people. Jesus understood that anyone who opposed him, anyone who took a, a stand against him, was influenced by the devil. And so he was able to look right past their actions and past their rudeness, and he knew the source. And even though it was extremely difficult for him to do it, he continued to reach out and to love and accept and to serve Judas, knowing Judas was about to betray him with a kiss. With a kiss. Listen to me very carefully. 
If the love of God is powerful enough to absorb the sting of betrayal, if the love of God is powerful enough to absorb the sting of betrayal and the Holy Spirit put that spotlight right on betrayal, if the love of God can do that, it can overcome anything. And the scripture says that love covers a multitude of sins. Ugly sin, gross sin, the worst kind of sin you could possibly imagine. And so again, thinking that your shameful past is always going to define you, that's a lie. Because the power of God's love can deal with a shameful past. And by the same token, having the mindset that somebody else's shameful past or sinful past is always going to define them, that's a lie. When you look at someone who's done something horrible and terrible and miserable and you, and you pass judgment and say they're always going to be that way, that's a lie. You see, any guilt and condemnation that we have after that sin or that failure has been confessed and repented of is a lie. Because the truth is there is therefore now no condemnation, no guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see how the enemy can trick us up? How he can get us to believe things that aren't even close to being true? So here's what I want you to do. Just before we receive the bread and the cup this morning, I want you to take a, a little look at the inside of your heart and I want you to do that from an overhead position. I want you to get up, not stand up, just in your mind, outside of yourself and take inventory of your spiritual garden, which happens to be you. Are oh, you got it? Are you seeing the picture? Do you see any weeds in your garden? Do you see any weeds? Or maybe the question should be, how many weeds do you see? Because we all have weeds in our garden. The master who sold the perfect garden with the purest amount of wheat ended up with weeds. Why? An enemy did this. An enemy did this. And what Jesus was trying to communicate to us in this parable, along with so many other pieces of information and truth is that for us today rather than focusing on the weeds how about we just pay more attention to the wheat how about that become our focus how about we stick to the truth and put our trust in God and tell the devil we are not going to believe your lies Father, I thank you for setting your people free today from lies that have kept them bound for years and years. I pray for freedom, Lord, because it is the human tendency to focus in on the weeds. That's what the guys in the parable said. They didn't come back to the master and say, look how great the wheat is growing. Look, it's sprouted. We got a lot of fruit on the plant. They totally dismissed the wheat in the garden 
and they focused in on the weeds, which is what we like to do, Lord. I pray we could shift gears a little bit this morning and our focus could be you. And what the Son of Man is doing in our lives, what Jesus Christ has already done, the salvation, the freedom, the healing, the blessing. Lord, set your people free today. Let us understand we can trust you. It's the devil we can't trust because he is a liar. He's a murderer from the very beginning. You identified him, Lord, and we are going to take that declaration as truth. Minister, Lord, in these closing moments, we pray. Amen. Let's take the bread and the cup together. Thanks again for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. For more messages like this and other resources, visit us online at cccsterling.org.